Welcome back to another episode of Addicted to MRR. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming JC Granger. How are you doing, JC? Hey, Travis. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you know, I, I was mentioning right before the call, you're you're one of my first people through a, a neat little service called Podbooker. So I'm really glad it it brought us together and expanding the world of podcasts. Uh, as you know, probably if you listen to any previous episodes here at Addicted to MRR, we talk about subscription-based businesses, people who run them, people who know how to optimize them, and that kind of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your business and kind of where you're at right now? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm the CEO of Infinity Marketing Group. Uh, we've been around about 11 years. Um, I've been doing digital for a little over 20. Uh, I think it probably hasn't existed much longer than that, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we're probably not one of your more traditional MRR conversations because, yeah, you know, I'm sure you probably interview a lot of like software companies, for example, SaaS models, things like that, where people can just like jump online and hit subscribe. Um, our, our, our model is just more or less because we're a marketing agency. We have a lot of residual services, but we focus very intently on the MRR version of our business um, because traditionally, you know, when a marketing agency start, you know, they start in a lot of maybe development world, you know, websites and things like that, project-based things. And those peaks and valleys are just uh, unsustainable uh, for my personality type anyway. So we really pivoted into a more of a, you know, monthly recurring revenue model uh, with our services. Yeah, that's great. Can you kind of walk me through, like, how, how does someone make that jump from being project-based to being subscription-based and, and make it sustainable in a way that their clients like? Because, you know, way back in the day, I did a little bit of, uh, you know, agency and client work, and it was always, you know, here's how much I want to spend. And it's like, well, that's not what you told me you want to do. This, you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the kind of meme going yeah. around about... Uh, yeah, you know, the, the the boy in the boat with the tiger. I forget the name of the movie that it was based off. Of. It's like the what the client, oh, the client Life brief. Of pie. Life of pie, right? Exactly. Client brief versus client budget, and it's like, you know, some random kid in the Philippines with like some duct tape and a and a cat with a hat on it or something. That's so. <laughs> so, how did you navigate that, and and how have your customers responded, and and how does the value proposition change? I guess is probably the better question. I mean, the transition was was hard. Um, the way we started was. You know, back when 11 years ago, you had this really weird time of about a year and a half where everyone had a mobile device and was, you know, viewing their, you know, smartphone and was viewing websites on tiny smartphone devices. But almost none of the major websites were mobile optimized, right? There, there was that transition period where you didn't have like uh, um, the automatic uh, response. Thank you, responsive. I brain fart there. So yeah, you didn't have the automatic responsive website coming out right when you built it. And even when you did, you still had these old legacy sites. So we had like this one client that was a, a big flower company. It's kind of like a 1-800-Flowers, you know, kind of one of those types of companies. Mm -hmm. So they had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And we had, our job was to basically convert their big giant site to a small site that could be uh, seen on phones. And so we did that for a while. And then they would say, well, hey, well, since you did such a good job on our mobile site, can you make regular websites? So, you know, being the accidental agency that we were, like most of them um, that come around, we're like, yeah, sure, why not? So we started doing regular websites. And then that turned into, can you do apps? And that was a big mistake when I said yes to that. Massive mistakes. I, I do not recommend that. If you're a marketing person, like, don't go into apps. Like, it's, it's dev world times 20. Um, so that was really hard and rough. And so I, that's where we kind of hit that pivot. We're like, you know, this project-based work is these huge peaks and valleys, right? We'd be up a hundred grand in one month and then, you know, 10, 12 grand the next couple months because we're working on the projects, right? There's only so much sales you can do um, when you're, you're a very small company and it's just like you plus a few people, you know, you got your head 
in, in, you know, in the, uh, in the computer working on stuff. So I realized that the only way to make a sustainable company that was going to a make me happy uh, and B be able to grow um, or even maybe sell one day was to have a model where there was predictable income. Right. And that's really why most people do MRR. It's predictable. You know, next month you're going to make X amount most likely. And that allows you to make certain business decisions in advance. Right. So you can hire people knowing that, Hey, uh, I can hire two employees because I can cover that salary easily for the next 90 days, no matter what, for example. I mean, can't, it's really hard to do that when you're in project-based system. So do we still do some project-based stuff? Sure. We don't do apps. Thank God. Uh, so just to clarify, <laughs> by the way, on apps, you mean like mobile apps, right? Not necessarily yeah, mobile apps. Or, yeah. 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 Mobile apps, mobile apps. We never really touched the, uh, the desktop app stuff at ever. Um, but mobile apps, uh, we, we love marketing mobile apps, by the way. We're great at marketing them, um, but we don't want to make them anymore. Ironically, though, we're actually really good at marketing mobile apps because we used to make them. So like, we understand all the pitfalls and what happens in the development process and what affects the marketing. So we have a little bit more insight than most when it comes to that, but we don't test the dev work. But anyway, long story short is uh, we switched to that more MRR model because it was just too tough to grow an agency you know, with these giant roller coaster revenue style streams, you know, so we wanted something more consistent that could increase over time that allows us that predictability and the ability to make a better, more um, in advance business decisions for the growth and health of the company. Makes total sense. You know, it allows you said, you know, make different decisions in your business that it gives you a long-term view on things, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not the we're rich, we're poor mentality of, you know, like, uh, for instance, one of my softwares, you know, contest domination, which is a contest tool, you know, it started with the launch model, right? Like it, it was a, a product that launched for a lifetime price, you know, to get some initial users. And that's, I still advocate, that's a great way to find some product market fit, get early beta testers, right? Do this like limited trial run of mm -hmm. lifetime deals. Um, but the decisions you make, if you are in the business of doing launches for lifetime deals versus the decisions you make to do a launch and then turn that feedback into a subscription business are very, mm -hmm. very different. Um, massively different. Yeah. So, so once you got out of apps, <laughs> well, that one bad decision, yeah. <laughs> what, what was like, what was the core services rendered that, and how did your clients actually take that from their end? I understand why sure. of course subscription as an agency is wonderful for the agency, but how do you also make it wonderful for the clients as well? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, we didn't really have to think too hard about it because again, a lot of agency owners, when they start off, you know, that's, there's no, there's a reason why we say the accidental agency. It's usually someone who quits their job and is like, you know, I'm going to make websites, right? They, they start with like one thing and they just keep getting asked to do more things because they were good at doing that thing. I had an old boss once that told me, be careful what you do good. You might be asked to do it twice. <laughs> right? Very true. Very so, true. Or, to, or, or to do more things, right? Like other things that you hadn't done before. And so that's kind of what happened to us. We, again, we started with the mobile conversion websites, but then they're like, well, can you do regular websites? And then they say, can you do apps? And then that pretty much, you know, and then that got into branding and logos. So it was like all dev and creative work. But then they, they, they say, hey, since you made these things, can you do our social media? So there's a, there's a okay. very, it, it was an easy transition into that sense because the first MRR type of marketing that was the most closely related after, you know, making a website and logo for people, like most companies, their next question was, Hey, you did really good on that creative work. And since we use a lot of the creative work in social media, do you do social media? So that was our first pivot into MRR was working on the social media stuff. And that's really where my life got way better and more fun because I love social media. You know, I'm, I'm, I was born at a time and entered marketing 
digital marketing, basically to the point where I was on the front end of everything when it came out, right? I was the first one messing with SEO on Google. I was one of the first ones on YouTube and Facebook and, you know, MySpace when all that came out, you know, even when certain things die off, I've just always been in a position to be there early. So when they asked about social media, I was like, sure, because I knew that really well, right? Um, and so that's how we started getting into that. So then, of course, you know, we come up with a monthly model um, and uh, we had to adjust our contracts to make sure that there was, you know, time commitment minimums, which if you're an MRR as an agency, again, if you're a software company, it's typically, you know, month to month, right? It's typically use it, cancel at any time, and that's fine. Um, especially if it's something that's, you know, low cost and, and there's not a whole lot of need to cancel, right? It's just one of those services that people use a lot. Um, every now and then you see a software where, you know, like Adobe will lock you in for like a year or something stupid, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but as an agency, because you don't really want to get locked in this month to month thing, because again, that's not very predictable. And then when you're an agency, you're putting your front loading with a lot of upfront work and you're going in the red sometimes on your cost to, to build that client up. So you got to make sure that they stick around for, you know, at least 90 days, for example, right? Like three, six months or whatever. So we built that into our contracts. And once it started happening and we started having three, six, nine, 12 month social media contracts, everything got, I mean, it was just a, a breath of fresh air because we could sit back and go, okay, now we know that we are covered for these many months. Now, all of a sudden, like the whole picture just got wider. It was like going from like a, like a sniper scope to a panoramic view, right? I mean, I can't even tell you how my brain changed almost overnight when that started happening because all these new possibilities of ways we could go and different things we could offer the clients and different services that we could also add onto MRR and just everything changed then. It was great. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, you know, the old project model, it's kind of like selling the car, right? People feel like it's a transaction that they, they buy a thing and that it's kind of done. And then any follow-up is, is the equivalent of like the oil change, right? You might sure. buy, you might buy the $50,000 SUV, but then you're only going to get a couple hundred dollars every six months for the oil change. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that, that's very, <laughs> very difficult. Whereas the subscription is more like, Hey, you're looking for transportation. How about instead of selling you the car, we'll just be Uber, right? We'll, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll service you as you need. And then the great thing about social media is that it's so ephemeral, right? Like, yes, there is some objectives and you have your own content, but the best social media is sort of writing the the current trends, right? What's going on yeah. right now? Like if you had pre-written all of your 2020 social media stuff in 2019, you're going to feel really out of touch with all the COVID stuff going on, right? So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it requires consistent attention and investment. And so that- Well, you I know, is, you, you know who did a really good job at, go, at pivoting from, uh, from you know, one-time cost stuff to, to residual? Was, was Microsoft. And by the way, this is the only time I'm ever going to say anything nice about Microsoft. So don't ever ask me again. Um, but Microsoft, remember with their, with their Windows uh, and their Microsoft you know, Windows and, and Word and, and their uh, Office, I should say, their Office Suite. That used to be like a really big cost. It was like, you know, you'd have to spend, you know, 500 or $1,000, you know, to, to get the, the whole suite of everything they had. And then one day they said, what about $10 a month? Just yep. indefinitely. And it was so brilliant. And the fact it took them that long to get there surprised me. But when they got there, I was really impressed. And I thought that was a really impressive, uh, big time, you know, you know, real world brand name example of what is usually an upfront one-time cost. In that case, you know, I call it project cost. But for them, you know, it was like you said, like the lifetime license, so to speak. Uh, pivoting over to that monthly residual because even they could now predict every month. Because the fact is, once you download and, and are paying $10 a month for Microsoft Word and Excel, you're not going to be like, I don't need that anymore. Like, it's just too integrated into daily <laughs> life. So it was a brilliant, brilliant move. And, and the way that I think that people 
let's say anyone listening who maybe does, let's say, website design. I feel like a lot of people who listen to your podcast are probably not just people who are in MRR, but probably desire to get there, right? And Correct. one, one uh, service I see a lot that just always struggles is website designers. Um, and one of the, the better versions I've seen is, is website designers who figure out how much time it really takes them to do something, right? You got to get your own numbers down first before you make this move. But once you figure out you know, what it takes to get something, um, I've seen website designers start to basically rent the website. They say, I'll make the site for free. And for as long as you want it, it's $100 a month. And that's it, right? Now, obviously, they're going to put that upfront time in, right? But over time, people usually, I mean, like, because if they, if they stop paying, they don't have the website anymore. And they could start over and go get someone to do a new website, but that doesn't really make sense. And since it's a monthly subscription, they typically include, like, an hour's worth of maintenance a month, use it or lose it. Because the fact is, it usually doesn't need much maintenance. You can set up a lot of that stuff on autopilot with plugins for, you know, like updates and, and security and things like that, right? And, um, and then they can put it into, like, a host, and they host it for free also, which only costs them almost nothing compared to that. So $100 a month doesn't sound like a lot. And you need to pick whatever you want. I've seen up to $250 a month, but you could build a pretty great website and just basically rent it to the client for life. And a lot of clients, depending on what their budget is in the beginning, will take that option like a lease for a car. You brought up the car thing, right? Instead of putting that big down payment, one, they'll, they'll lease the car instead of buying it, right? And because it works better for their cash flow at the moment. So I thought that was a really brilliant example of people who've t- gone from, you know, one-time project-based style, you know, uh, uh, money to an MRR. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and, and continuing that lease analogy, it may need a significant update every couple of years. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But even but yeah. that's okay. Yeah, it's from, you know, I always look at when you're charging for something, how are you alleviating pain, right? And the interesting thing about that is yeah, they're going to be paying something for hosting anyway, right? But most most clients don't value the the hosting portion of that that much because you can go to you know as even though they're terrible like a blue host or something right for mm-hmm. you know under 100 bucks a year and get <laughs> yeah. and get hosting it's it's miserable hosting but you can get i didn't hosting. like them either i didn't like them either we yeah. switched to dream host we like dream host has always been great and I, I always like it because of its customizable uh back end there's really cool things you could do from an agency standpoint when you have multiple clients on it but i've always been a dream host fan personally but it, but it kind of encapsulates the whole concept, you know, like the, the old Black & Decker CEO had said, you know, we don't sell drills, we sell holes, right? So when you're, when you're <laughs> yeah. selling the outcome, it's worth a lot more than selling the tool that gets you to the outcome per se. Exactly. Um, and exactly. so, you know, when you're, when you're the, the tool in this case is hosting, but the outcome is having a great website. And so that changes the calculus from the client's point of view about what they'd be willing to pay for the outcome of having a great website that they don't have to mess with, they don't have to think about, and yeah, maybe they're paying, you know, maybe they would have only been willing to pay, let's just say really low 500 bucks to get a website built and they would have paid 80, you know, 85, hundred bucks a year, uh, for hosting, you know, that's only 600 bucks the first year, but they would happily pay a hundred dollars a month <laughs> to make the pain yeah. just go away and not have to think about yeah. it. And if you look at it from the web designer's point of view, you know, after a couple of years, they made $2,400 on that. So they've already, at two years in, they've made back what they probably would have charged originally. And then after that, everything is gravy. It's just bonus, 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 bonus money. For sure. So, you know, how do you deal with churn though? Because I assume it's it's a different ball game when it comes to working with clients as opposed to, you know, mm-hmm. in my case, a software business. Churn is a is this very calculable thing. You can do a lot of things to try to reduce churn. Like wh- how big of a problem is it for you? And what what mechanisms are you putting in place to try to reduce it? 
Sure. So first I'll, I'll answer that about us, uh, but then I'll also maybe weigh in a little bit about how I think a lot of software companies maybe don't prevent churn in the right way. But for us as a service agency, um, one big thing we do is, and not, listen, I, I get that not every agency can do this, especially in the beginning. You know, I always say that, uh, uh, you know, you do what you got to do when you got to do it. Right. And so if you're brand new and, you know, you know, COVID put a lot of people out of work. So, you know, they're, they're pivoting to, to contract based stuff. So listen, if, if you got to take a client, you got to take a client, but we're 11 years in. So we have the luxury now of being able to not take a client. Right. And so there are certain things that we do to trial our clients or prospects and clients just as much as they trial us. So for example, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're going to have a good relationship because if we have a good relationship and they like us and we like them and we believe in, in their product or their service, um, you know, we have, I only hire experts. So, so the good news is we don't have any like, you know, rookies or, or, you know, college grads or interns and those, those are fine. There's, there's companies for them. We're just not one of those companies. We only hire experts. So the quality of work is always really good. We never have to worry about churn based on the quality of our work. You know, we have uh, our, our Google rating is five stars after 11 years in business as a service agency. That is obscene. That never happens. Yeah, right? you usually, you no... usually piss off at least a few people along the way. <laughs> at least. I mean, and listen, by the way, if we did, I, I would be okay with that too. Because again, that's just human nature. You can't please everyone. But the reason why we've kept such a perfect score is because we also make sure we don't engage with uh, uh, any kind of client that wouldn't be a right fit, right? So we really try to focus, my agency focus mostly on B2B tech, right? Now I take referrals in from different industries, about 10 to 15% of my business is completely random. And I like to call it keeping it spicy, right? Cause you, you'd be surprised what you learn from a marketing a completely unrelated industry that can give you ideas for your industry, right? It's kind of like how art and science can actually help each other out even though they're completely right left brain style. So like I have like roofing clients sometimes, right? Or insurance companies. That's nothing to do with B2B tech, but it gives us ideas back and forth for our main audience, which is I absolutely agree but, with this, by the way. I do this a lot myself. So I still yeah, agree. With I always recommend keeping like up to 20% of any of your business completely random just for that reason alone, right? You just, you don't have to advertise it, but you know, if you get referred in, just allow some of that through the door. Don't it turn it all It gets you outside away. of your own echo chamber is the kind of it the does. biggest thing. It actually, it really does. It's, it's in, in my degree in psychology. So I, I can tell you from, from, from actual educational experience that there is a real uh, legitimate uh, thing to that, you know, as far as those, those two working together. But um, as far as how we prevent churn, so again, we make sure that we uh, have the right client fit. We make sure that their budget matches their desire, like you said, right? And the fact is, let's say they have a big budget, but their desire and what, they, what the outcome is even bigger than that. If we can't bring them down to earth on the reality, then we're out. We walk, we say, listen, this is not going to be a good fit because for us, we, as an agency, we do have to care about the outcome. I have turned away business and I've canceled contracts when it looked like that the expectation was going to exceed the reality that we made very clear. And the reason being is my name's on that too. I don't, we're not in this just for the money. If you're building a business for the money, you are in a business for the wrong reason. Go get a job for money. Right. Um, but if you are in a business for money and not your passion, and not the outcome for the client, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. It's going to catch up to you, right? It's going to ruin everything. So we are in it, you know, when we take on clients because we believe we can actually affect change under their financial constraints that they have with that. If I don't think I can do that, I'm out. And I tell them, I say, listen, I don't think I can do what you want with this budget. So I can refer you to other agencies that maybe might be able to help you, or you can come back when you found that money. And guess what? Nine times out of 10, they go find the money. 
because they appreciate the honesty because everyone else is telling them that it's going to be great. They painting uh, rainbows and unicorns and I'm painting thunderstorms, right? Purposely though. Cause I'm like, Hey, if you're still listening after all this bad news, <laughs> then, then we can actually proceed because now you understand the reality of how hard this is, will really be and how collaborative it has to be. So again, um, having that reality check in the beginning uh, is big having hiring quality staff that can actually get the work done that don't have to be trained all the time really helps um, a low churn rate. Um, and honestly too, um, you know, uh, we, I always keep up on certain things like there's this book called um, uh, the first hundred days. Um, I highly recommend reading that. It's, it's basically a, a book about that first hundred days of an engagement with the client and how to keep them happy and engaged after you've already sold them. Cause so many different companies just move on. They say, great, got the money. They kick it down to, to production and then they just, they forget about them. Right. And that's yep. not the way to do it. You have to engage with them and make sure that they understand that that was a good purchase that you were, that it is, this is still the right fit. You want to get rid of buyer's remorse or any kind of anxiety in that, in that uh, ramp up period. Cause there's a lot of stuff that's going to go wrong in the onboarding process and the ramp up period. Right. It's just, that's just how it goes, but you get through it and you push through it. And as long as you know how to keep that client relationship uh, intact, your churn rate will be minimal, if almost nothing. And also, by the way, make sure that your employee churn rate is low. The easiest way to stop client churn rate is to prevent employee churn rate. And you got to treat your people better than you treat yourself. And if you can't get that through your head, you're screwed no matter what, to be completely honest. Because if you take care of people, they'll take care of you. And when they're happy, they work harder and better. They get more creative and they're more engaged with the clients, which creates a better product, a better service. So the client's happier. Now they're making more money. So now they're giving you more money to do more work. So most of our clients not only don't churn out, they go and raise more capital and give it to us to market because we're already providing a great result. So honestly, I think the reverse math all starts with treating your own people in-house properly and the rest will kind of cascade into its own success. Absolutely. And we're going to get back to that upsell in just a second, but I want to, I want to go through some of the things you just mentioned uh, and, and expand it a little bit more. So, you know, I, I would think, especially in your industry being a service-based business, really, um, not only do you want more, the maximum amount of output from your people, but from someone who's been on the other end of that, that that's been the client, it's pretty disconcerting when your rep, your point of contact changes especially if it changes frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my first job out of college, I was an account manager uh, for this digital curriculum, uh, high school digital curriculum company. And I, they gave us, we all got hired in a batch and I had like 150 clients that I had to call and introduce myself. And I'm like, okay, you know, new job, sure, let's do it. And about 30% of them were just like, what the hell's going on over there? You're like my fifth rep in a year. <laughs> so it's like, oh, oh, that's not a good sign for my job. It's not a good experience for the client. You know, what does that mean on all these different fronts, right? And accumulatively, like it was, it was like three to $5 million in recurring business a year that I was responsible mm -hmm. for. And that's how they treated it. It was like a revolving door for their rep. And it's like, even if the product quality is amazing, even if the end result is great, sometimes that touch point can just make them think, hmm, did I not make the right decision, right? Like the, the sales process does not stop when the credit card hits the checkout page. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, most people, they don't, they don't see it that way. They don't get that. I know a lot of what I like to call churn mills. There's a lot of agencies where their price point is so low that they realize, and their quality is low too, but they realize that there will be a never-ending supply of people who will buy regardless just because it's cheap. And, you know, that's not our style. And it's unfortunate that it's a reality because, hell, by the time we get some business owners coming to us, they've been burned two or three times before they even hit our doorstep. 
you know, so that actually makes even our job even harder to convince them like, no, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Right. But, uh, you know, it's just, that's the nature, unfortunately, of, of business sometimes. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's just really too bad. I think a lot of people need to spend some time looking at revenue projections with different rates of churn to realize how sensitive your maximum ceiling is uh, to your churn rate. Like a, what seems like a smaller insignificant bump on churn, half a percent can make a wildly different outcome <laughs> for where your ceiling yeah. is of, of how mm -hmm. big your business can get with that churn. Cause at a certain point, all you're doing is backfilling what you've lost, right? You will hit a ceiling guaranteed when yep. you have churn. So it's yep. super, super sensitive there, you know, going from, uh, you know, 5% churn to 2% churn is a lot bigger impact than you'd think. Um, so it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of I crazy. Agree. And then, and then I love that you're, you're trying the clients in advance. You know, I think a, a lot of people, especially early stage, and I get it, like, you know, I, I bootstrap the products that I'm, that I have, and, and it can be challenging and stressful and you can feel under pressure to take people that maybe aren't a good fit. And, you know, part of that comes with, as you said, you know, trial discussions in the, in the first hundred days, some of that too, is your marketing, right? Who are you attracting? Right. If, if you're one of those low end people, you know, a lot of those, their, their marketing attracts that kind too. It's promising the sky for 10 bucks and they don't care because they're just trying to get a couple bucks in the door. Whereas for us, like we, we make a conscious effort in some of our marketing to intentionally disqualify people, even in the ad. Right. And then we try to yeah. disqualify them again <laughs> at, at the opt-in page and just qualify them again at a video step and disqualify them again on the call booking page. Right. So that by the time that yeah. we get someone on the phone, they've, they've seen all the caution, you know, rocks ahead. <laughs> so yeah. You, you know, if you're looking for the, for the moon for 10 bucks, we're not them, but if you're, you know, if you're an A player and you have real ambitions and realistic budgets and you want these kind of outcomes and, we can probably do great work for you. So doing that is, is hard in the beginning when you need the money, but yeah. it's almost a necessary step to get the right people so that you're not just living in this chaotic hell of trying to fulfill people that'll never be happy and never attracting the right kind of people. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. That's, that's not talked about as much. Most people just say, how do you get more raw numbers in the door? Yeah. How do you well, get so, the right people in the door? And that's the wrong question to ask because that's, a, that, that's, talking, that's like talking gross instead of net. I don't care about gross. If my gross is 10 million a year and my net is a hundred thousand, I'm not doing well. <laughs> right. Correct. I'll take a mil, I'll take a million gross with a 50% net over, you know, a 10 million with the 1% net. So, um, you know, and, and one thing we also do, and I recommend other people is, you know, have an intro product or service, something easy, small, where you, you can, you can bring that client in, they're paying you money to do work or, or for your software subscription, have an intro starter one, and what this allows you to do is a couple of things. One is a lot of people forget that someone who spends any amount of money with you, even if it's $5, it doesn't matter. It's just the pure psychological exchange of money for services. Once they've spent any money with you of any kind, they are 75% more likely to spend money with you again. And again, the numbers don't really matter. It's not about how much they spent. If I spent $5 with you and then you come and say, how about a Lamborghini and I can afford it? I'm actually likely to buy it from you. That's just the way it works. So that's important because if you start with an intro service, you're not giving up the big package because you've got them, you've got the hooks in, right? And also it allows you an escape hatch because if you bring them in on a short or small, you know, a service or product, and then you get through that and you realize that this is not a good fit. Maybe the client is just, maybe they're berating you and they have un, you know, unrealistic expectations and they're making you miserable or even worse, your staff miserable because there's nothing worse than that. 
um, it gives you the ability to get out without being already married into some big long contract that would get messy if you were to exit. So we have intro services that we'd start people on. And even when they ask for like a bunch of things up front, I say, that's great. And we can totally get to that, but let's start with this. Make sure that you like our process. Make sure that you like, you know, make sure that we're attentive. We know what we're talking about. We'll make sure that you guys are, are, are responsive to us. So, you know, I make it an equal footing proposition and they usually appreciate that because now I'm actually turning away money and, and services. So they really start to believe that we care because we do, but we, we care about ourselves and them. You know, we care about uh, the health and mental health of our own employees and staff, and we care about the success of the client. So I recommend starting with something small, even if they're asking for something big, if you're not quite sure about them yet, because if you, you can always go up to the bigger stuff, but it's really hard getting out if you've started there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's kind of like the commitment of hiring someone too, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. whenever we hire technical people for our team, you know, usually we give them a test project that we may have already solved, <laughs> but we'll we'll pay them to redo it uh, as yeah. if it hadn't been done That's to smart. see how the see how the work went, <laughs> see how the relationship yeah. went, see what their solutions were. You know, it's it's kind of like you know I've heard that when Apple goes through deep interviews with product designers, and whatever else. And, you know, they spitball, you know, Oh, I would make a touchscreen MacBook or something, right? Like something that's fairly obvious that Apple hasn't actually shipped. And then what they do is they, you know, ask them their ideas and they bring out their like 10 examples. Here's the 10 ways we've already tried to solve this. <laughs> you know, there's that exact thing you just described where I did that. How would you make it better? You know, it's, it's trying to accelerate yeah. that process um, of figuring out the next step, but no, a trial is great, but, um, you know, we talked about upsells earlier. I know it seems, it seems like with your client-based stuff, you know, it, it's pretty natural, right? If it's a good fit and you want to keep working with them, or even if you don't, they'll, they'll generally ask you to do more and more stuff. I totally agree. It's a psychological shift from being a, a prospect lead to a buyer lead. Um, how does that conversation typically go? And how do you continually ascend your customers into larger and larger packages to where you're taking over a, a bigger piece of the marketing pie? Sure. Um, so with some industries that you work in or specialize in, it, it's different than others. So for example, you know, we're B2B tech. So we actually work with a lot of software companies, a lot of SaaS companies. Um, what makes quote unquote upselling easier for us is one, again, kind of going back to earlier, we actually get asked more than we pitch because the fact is if you do a really good job on something, it, you won't have to upsell anything. I assure you that conversation of what else do you got? is going to come up faster than you're probably comfortable saying, what else can we do for you? So 90% of the time, we're not even actually trying to upsell as much as they're asking what other things we can do. And then we go into that, that process of, you know, you know, you ask, you know, what are their goals? How much more budget do they have? You know, and then we go into proposal and whatnot. So do we upsell? Yeah. But is it like McDonald's style? Like, would you like to supersize that? No. Um, the fact is we concentrate and focus on what we are needed for in that moment. And we don't, we don't get greedy. Could we go in and go for the throw? And when they ask for social media, could we throw in and say, you know, you could really use email on top of that too. Yeah, we could, but that's not our particular culture. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that someone listening shouldn't do it. There's a very valid, you know, path to that. And, and there's a lot of you know, people comfortable with that. And that's fine for us. We just really like to make sure that we're showing the client that, hey, we're here for you and asking for more right away before we've even delivered initially is, is, is not part of our culture. And even after we've delivered, again, 95% of the time, before we get to the point where we're like, yeah, we did a really good job. Now we're going to go in and ask them if they want to do this and that. And we do have that plan. Don't get me wrong. We do have timelines where if they start with one thing, you know, and that's usually around that 90 day mark because about 90 days is about all the time we need 
to have onboarded, launched, um, taken the data in and pivoted based on whatever results are coming in, and then get to uh, essentially a qualified optimization of that service. Basically meaning that that client is getting about as much bang for their buck as they can. That happens around day 90 for some services. For things like SEO, it could happen a lot longer, like that six to nine months, because that just takes a lot longer. Mm -hmm. But for most services, it's around that 90-day mark. So we do have a plan to say, hey, we've been doing this for a while. Everything's going good. Um, you know, we think we could do these other things for you. But again, that that outreach only happens 5% of the time because the other 95%, they're cutting us shorter on that timeline. And they're asking us already what we could be doing because they just wanted to see proof of life, right? Proof of concept. And the second they see it, not even the actual end result, they see it going in the right direction. They're already asking for more. Yeah, makes sense. We, we get some similar stuff with our email clients that are like, Hey, you know, we, we want to do this with a different domain or we want to, you know, they start to, usually they own a lot more web properties. And so the, the first, the first account is, is usually more of a shot over the bow than the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Do you, do you ever consciously or subconsciously, do you think you seed some of your other services during some of those initial calls? Like if someone comes to you about social media, um, and they talk about, you know, their, their total outreach program, you say, great, you know, we'll, we'll get started on the social media, you know, but we, but we'll circle back with you about email and that may be something we can do a really good job for you too, because we do offer these other services, but we'll talk about that later. Do you, do you consciously or unconsciously maybe seed that earlier in the process yeah, as well? I do, but not really for, as far as a pre-sell I do it because I've been doing what I've been doing so long that I, I automatically without even trying kind of always go into consultant mode. You know, I'm really just trying to educate them a little bit so they understand. And I tell them, for example, if they want to start with social media, I say, that's great. But social media by itself doesn't, isn't too effective uh, unless you have a lot of paid budget behind it, which means you're really kind of going into two, uh, you're going to PPC now and you're going into social. So there's certain things that marry well with other things. So initially in the first talks, I'll say, listen, these types of services here do really good standalone, right? Like we do a LinkedIn outreach uh, uh, lead gen service that can stand completely alone all by itself. Um, but I also tell them, I say, now, listen, if you like that, if it goes really well, the solution is not to just keep adding more accounts and doing this because although we can scale the volume, what, if you wanted to decrease your sales cycle and increase your sales conversion rate, then rather than just throwing more volume at the LinkedIn outreach, we actually want to add something like social media management and content because content and building authority and staying front of mind with that audience is going to help increase your conversion rates and it's going to help decrease your sales cycle. Also email marketing, like you were talking about, marries really well with, uh, with LinkedIn outreach because they, they got a, a message from you or they see your stuff on LinkedIn. Um, they had, they maybe got your email newsletter, for example, now with email. Um, and then uh, retargeting paid ads goes really well because now your ads are kind of following them around the internet and they're way cheaper than a traditional paid ad campaign, right? Retargeting is a lot cheaper. So I'll tell them in the beginning where that can go because people like to see, you know, you know, the future of it. You know, my, my podcast is called the future of biz tech. It's literally the entire point is what's coming next. People like to know what they can look forward to. And so what I tell them in the initial process, even if we're talking about just one or two services, is I say, listen, we're going to do these and, and, and we're going to, we're going to do great with these, but just so you know, it, for the future, if you ever do decide to, to make those work even better, they marry really well with these other services and here's why. But for now, we're just going to start with these. And so that seeds them to think about the future of how big it can be. Otherwise, they get in this mindset of, 
okay, this is great. And they do that. And then they start looking elsewhere and for other companies and for other services that can also do things. Because if you don't tell them where it can go from here, they're just going to go start looking where it can go from there. Because the human mind is not usually content with just what's right in front of its face. It's typically looking down the road in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I can relate with that a lot because I, I have a similar kind of approach, right? You, you can't help but go put into your your uh, analytical brain and, and your consulting hat and try to say, you know, what's the bigger picture here? Where, where are all the symptoms? <laughs> not just the yeah. one you came to me. You know, it's not just the sore knee. Maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's a overcompensating for some other injury somewhere else. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe you benefit quite a bit by, you know, you mentioned you only hire experts, right. Part of, of having true domain expertise is that you can see all the moving pieces. And so I think that 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 probably helps you quite a bit on that initial laying out the groundwork, it sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. Cool, well, you know, I I know you talked about a little bit how you got your first, you know, 10 customers, at least for what they were doing. How how did that actually go though? Like, how did you actually get the first 10 people to give you money? Uh, Yeah, like I said, because we start off in dev, um, we were doing so many websites and mobile websites that they'd already given us money. And like I said, that that's what's really great is a lot of people focus so much on getting new clients and they don't realize that it takes less money and less time to simply add on services to to current clients, right? Because again, they've already spent that money. You've already built that relationship. And but, but so how did you get the you first save... 10 clients? Like the, the, that oh, first the, oh, 10. Oh, 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 I thought you meant from the MRR. So you meant just from the initial 10. Correct. Um, that was hard. <laughs> um, I had, yeah, because I had, I didn't come from like corporate America. I didn't come from a lot of people started agencies. They were in corporate America specializing in doing marketing for these big companies. So when they leave, you know, they send that email and say, Hey, I'm going out on my own. Who's coming with me. Right. The old, the old Jerry Maguire. Move, <laughs> <Crickets> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, who's coming with me. And he's got his goldfish. And then, his, and then that one girl in the office who came with him. Right. But that was not my story. Um, I was a, a marketing director for a, a large tax firm in Colorado and I did uh, marketing just internally for them. So that, that was, and I had no interest in, in staying in the tax industry for when I went out on my own. So when I left um, and I left because you know, my daughter was four years old and I, I was missing it. You know, I was, I was working all the hours and I realized I had a very small window of time where I could really do something where I could spend that time with her. And so I, I just quit one day. I didn't have much of a plan. I don't recommend that. Uh, that's me. I'm kind of a jump off the cliff, figure out how to fly on the way down. That's not smart. Don't do it. <laughs> but that's my personality. Uh, so I left. I had nothing. I had no plan. I had no leads. I had nothing. I basically went on Craigslist. Like that was, I went on Craigslist and I looked for the people posting, asking for, um, you know, web design help. Right. And so I figured if they needed web design help, what they probably weren't thinking about is the fact that they had to have a mobile site. And because I knew that whoever was going to help them with the website probably didn't know how to do it. I could pitch them that so that they could hire a web designer if they wanted to. And then they would also hire me to make the mobile version. Right. And so that's how I got a few clients right there. Like the, the super, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel style, you know, Craigslist. Um, you are not the then, first you know, person on this show that's used Craigslist to get their first time customers. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's gold. If you're just starting out and you're young and you're hungry and you're not even sure what direction you're going, right? So you just need for that something. Reason, you need some kind yeah, of movement. <laughs> that's all I needed. And, you know, once I had a couple of those, then those people referred me to other people. And then, of course, you know, just the time I took to go networking, you know, at events and things like that, um, you know, then I was able to get a, a couple of the bigger clients and, and you know, uh, the story goes from there. But, yeah, Craigslist was kind of my initial, like, well, let's go see what's out there kind of thing. Yeah, modern equivalent might be, you know, Upwork or 
whatever mm-hmm. else, right? Going oh, God, I wish I had Upwork back then. I <laughs> wish I had Upwork back then. Yeah, Jeez. I think a lot of people struggle because they, they get an idea and then, you know, like you said, they're not always in the industry per se that they want to be in. And so it's not only uh, going out on my own, it's going out on my own and getting my foot in the door on the industry I want to be in. Mm-hmm. So that's, yep. that's, that's a tough one, but thanks for sharing your story on that. I, I really appreciate it. You know, normally I ask, you know, what campaigns flop, but I already know the answer to that. You said building mobile apps. <laughs> well, th- th- well, how about this? I'll actually, I'll give you one more. <laughs> okay. And because it's right up your alley with email. So I, I cut my teeth on email uh, 20 years ago. That was all there really was 20 years ago. Right. I mean, there wasn't, SEO, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't, so, you know, there's no social media, no paid ads, none of that stuff. The only thing you really had was email and angel fire websites. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so I had learned from, from these big, like bulk mail server people. Um, I didn't partake and didn't do like the giant millions of emails, but I learned from them because I just found it fascinating. I was a tech nerd who grew up in the Bay area, you know, hacking AOL when I was 12 kind of story, like that kid, right. In the basement kind of thing. Um, so I just found it fascinating. And so one of, fast forward, you know, so uh, with email, uh, one of the campaigns that, that flopped actually, uh, it was about a year ago, um, we had actually signed up with a company that claimed that it had kind of those backend capabilities already, right? Because cold outbound email is very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's perfectly valid form of marketing. The problem is most people either A, abuse it, or B, don't understand the laws governing it, right? Um, or even just how to set it up. And so we're one of the very few agencies in the nation that legitimately offers a cold outbound email as a service. Um, but one of our vendors had claimed to have this whole backend system that, that dealt with that properly and whatnot. Um, and so we bought all these lists and, uh, for, for a client, ran them through this system, and the results were abysmal. And of, ultimately, basically what was happening was that they were just simply lying to us. They were telling us that they were had fresh IP addresses and they had warmed them up and that these domains that, that they had bought for us uh, were also had never been used. And the fact it just wasn't true. And we had, we had checked on it after the fact because this campaign was just absolutely flopping. It didn't make any sense because I'm an email expert. I know what I'm looking at. Everything from our end was on track and perfect. And I could not understand for the life of me how we were getting such abysmal open rates and click-through rates, right? Um, and so, uh, so anyway, the, the, I tell that story because sometimes something flops and it's completely out of your control, right? The app thing, that was in my control. I just, we just, it was just so difficult. We didn't know what we were getting into. We, that was, you know, 10 years ago. We were in way over our heads. And so we realized it quickly and, and we exited that and, and started only doing things that we knew we were really, really good at, which was the marketing side of things. But, you know, I'm a 20-year veteran on email and at year 19, I still came across a situation where I did everything right and it didn't matter. And so the moral of the story is that no matter how good you are, you can't control every aspect all the time necessarily. So you have to be really, you have to make sure that you really collaborate with the right, you know, vendors and whatnot. Ultimately our solution to that problem, by the way, was we ended up just creating our own backend system. It was not cheap. It did not, you know, it took a long time. We have a whole system now that, that we control completely. Um, because honestly, just leaving that kind of trust and for something so major into someone else's hands when simply they could just lie to you, uh, is not good. Right. Um, so that was something that flopped, but I'm telling that story because I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, uh, for as much as you can keep in your control or at least transparency with, you know, do that. Um, because you can't always necessarily rely on someone else to be doing either the right thing or the correct thing. And in the end, um, you know, if you want something done right, you know, I guess you got to do it yourself. So we, we created our own. 
Yeah. And, and cold email is not for the faint of heart. You know, we, uh, that's actually one area that, that we don't do here at campaign refinery. Um, you know, so we don't allow third-party lists, um, yeah. with, with cold email because it, not because it's illegal, it's, it's legal in the United States. It's, it's mm-hmm. not legal in some countries in some areas, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's just really hard. It's, if it's, it can easily become a game of whack-a-mole, right. Uh, as far yeah. as how you're handling your IPs and what those reputations are and, you know, some other mechanisms you have to do to try to, to make it work. And so it's, it's not impossible. It's not illegal yeah. in a lot of areas. Uh, it is in, it is in some, but not everywhere. Uh, but it, it is in, incredibly challenging. So kudos it to is. you for, for building but I do like the challenge. Works. Yeah, I do like the challenge and I do like the scalability of it. That's one thing I always did like, but I don't like a lot of people that are in the industry of doing it. Unfortunately, it is an industry plagued by spammers um, and, you know, uh, fishers and, you know, hackers too, right? I mean, there's people who do these emails so they can get your information and log into your accounts and destroy things, right? So unfortunately, the industry itself is, got a lot of, of black marks on it and it's really hard to find um people who do it the right way the legal way all above board have their own systems in place and again we tried to find companies that could we could just source that to and that was just so difficult we just said screw it we're just going to make our own and i'm kind of glad i did to be honest because i really do believe in the ethical uh, uh foundation of cold email marketing you know if somebody wants to opt out they you get them opted out you make sure you're only buying lists in places where they have permission where that person signed up to say, yes, I don't mind getting uh, communication from third parties. Like you need to follow every single letter of the law, period. And you have to give people a, an easy way to get out if they don't want to be there. You don't, you're not there to, to bother them. You're there to try to help them. The idea is that you're making sure you're buying lists, for example, that are targeted for your client's you know, uh, demographic so that you're actually sending them something that could be of value to them. You're not trying to grab, you know, 10 million emails and send them porn spam, right? Like that's not the goal here. Um, so I definitely, I'm definitely on the, on that, that other side of the realm there where we try to keep it very uh, beneficial to everyone and all above board. But, um, but yeah, but anyway, like I said, that was one of our flops though for a while was, you know, trying to outsource it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cold email done right is absolutely ethical and it sounds like you're following that and that's great. But yeah, you know, unfortunately, as you noted, there's a lot of morally bankrupt people that are involved in cold email and that don't follow mm-hmm. those guidelines. And so as a, as a platform provider, <laughs> that's why I don't yeah. want to mess with that pool of people. I talked about disqualifying. That's a big disqualifier for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, and what, what campaign has pleasantly surprised you on its success that you've run over the years? Our, our, our LinkedIn outreach by far. Um, I mean, LinkedIn is just such a, it's just almost because we're B2B of course. Right. And I like B2B more than B2C just because I like bigger wins. Right. You know, um, B2C is great. Don't get me wrong. You know, you, you could send, you know, you could sell a hundred thousand of a product, but it's kind of like a hundred thousand small wins. Whereas like, I like those enterprise deals. I like to know my, my client, like I had a client the other day, we'd only spent about, I think, $1,000 in their paid ad budget on Facebook. And they already booked $170,000 of, of, of work. And um, they, they make decks back backyard decks and things like that. $170,000 out of a thousand dollars that we had spent in that ad. I love hearing that. I love that. That just, that, that just gets my juices going. It's great. You know, to do with $7 like, eBooks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Like, and listen, don't get me wrong. You sell, you sell a hundred thousand of $7 eBooks. You're doing great. Right. But I just, I don't know, just something about, you know, those big wins that I always really like providing for myself and for clients. And that's really cool. So, um, so anyway, though, but, but, but LinkedIn though, uh, has been our easily, it's the fastest producing, like, you know, I said that 90 day optimization period, which is pretty average for most marketing. 
the LinkedIn stuff with our system and our service, it optimizes within like 30 to 45 days. So it's almost half the, uh, the, the, the time. And then it also just starts all those conversations. I just like that we help people reach out to their target demographic and get those conversations started so they can build that rapport and that, uh, those relationships so that they can be talking to the VP of sales at some company or the CTO of another company or the director of marketing at a Fortune 500 and they're trying to get their service in there. And then when we get those success stories, when they say, hey, guess what? I have a meeting with the CEO of you know, this Fortune 1000 company and we got a shot at this business and then they close it. And it all started with our LinkedIn outreach where they just were sent, you know, sent a, a connection request and started talking to some director who just started kicking them up the chain because they were doing it right. Like there's just something about that that pleases me so much. So I, I think our, our fastest and, and best service that just, that, that, that just rocks like almost every single time um, has to be our, our, our B2B kind of LinkedIn, you know, lead gen service. Yeah, we, we have to talk offline about that because, uh, you know, I get inundated with with pretty low, <laughs> low grade, low value uh, <laughs> yeah. LinkedIn pitches. And, and I hear it's, it's all in the strategy. It's all yeah. in the strategy. I hear the same yeah. from a lot of my, my colleagues and peers. So I'd be curious about, you know, the differentiation there. But I'll give you some tips for free no matter what. Yeah, after this, I'll, I'll just I'll give you some ideas and ways to to, to refine your messaging. And you'll see a result pretty immediately. You know, there's a LinkedIn culture. Um, and I think a lot of people, they don't understand the LinkedIn culture, right? They, they look at it from a sales, they're like, I'm a salesperson, so here's my sales process. And listen, anywhere else, that totally works. Not in LinkedIn. When, when people are in LinkedIn, they are in a certain mindset. And if you don't understand that mindset psychologically, and if you don't follow that culture, you're, you're, you're dead in the water before you even, you know, drop the boat in, right? So that, that, that's it. So really, you know, of all the different tools that are out there, of all the services, ultimately it comes down to what you say and when you say it and how you say it. And if you don't have those three checked off, the campaign will fail, I can assure you. <laughs> I know, because in the beginning, we failed on those campaigns and you know, because we did them internally for ourselves first. So we failed a lot. We, we figured out the hard way what doesn't work on LinkedIn. That was years ago, right? Now we've got a fully functional, you know, front-facing you know, client services for it and, and we have a ton of data and expertise and experience. So now we know what works and we just, repeat that and customize it toward the client. But yeah, I'll, I'll give you some cool tips on some, uh, some ways to really start that relationship organically um, where you're not kicked out of the door right away, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, we, we can chat about that some other time, but uh, I'll, I'll be very curious to follow up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, you know, this is the part uh, in, in the show where I like to sort of transition a little bit. You know, we, we've talked about your wins, your some of your struggles, uh, how you've transitioned from the you know the crazy headache of of project based to become re recurring, which is which is an amazing story. Uh, I really encourage all service providers to try to make a similar switch, give them some stability and sanity in their life. Yeah. But but even with things you know s seemingly going well now, um, you know mental health is is a big overlooked thing. You talked about putting in all the hours at one point, right, and and missing some of your 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 kids' childhood, and you know. I, as someone who has struggled with, uh, you know, some anxiety and panic as well with, you know, throughout the years of, of just stress management, you know, I'm always amazed as I talk to other entrepreneurs and, and people in, in really challenging roles, how they have some, some kind of uh, challenge, right? Whether that's anxiety, depression, panic, like some kind of mental health challenge. And so I'm curious, you know, wh which one of those things have you experienced, if any, and if you have, what, what routines, what habits, what procedures have you 
sort of integrated into your lifestyle to help you alleviate some of that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, um, you know, if you do the reverse math, I, I started my, my company in, uh, in 2011. Um, what I didn't say is I had been kind of doing, um, in 2008, when the, when the housing market crashed, I had lost my job immediately because, you know, I was in sales and for some reason sales and marketing were the first to go, which never made sense to me because it's literally how you bring money in, but whatever. <laughs> so I lost my job uh, almost immediately after the 2008 uh, crash. Um, and, you know, I was single, I was single dad, you know, and all of a sudden I couldn't make rent. I basically was in this position where and I literally could have been like homeless. Like, and don't get me wrong. I had friends and family that would have taken me in, but that's not, that's not the same as like, you know, and I don't mean I was me on the streets, but like when you're a single dad and you're trying to provide for your kid and all of a sudden you lose everything in one shot and you're like, what the hell do I do? It's a lot right? of instability um, all of a sudden. It is, it is. And it was really, really hard. And when, and I had a great job before that. I had a great career going. And um, so eventually, you know, I'd done some side pickup work, some contract stuff, right? Just a little bit of marketing here and there, nothing crazy. Um, and then I, and then I got another job because good news is I was good at sales and some companies were doing better than others after that. And they were pumping up the sales team. So I did that now. Now that sounds like, okay, well I solved the problem, but I really didn't because what 2008 taught me was that everything could be going great until it's not, Right? you just never know when that black swan event is going to hit and everything you built is going to go away. And, and I did not like not having that control right? That gave me anxiety. So I suffered uh, the same type of anxiety that almost everyone else did who had lost their job then, right? And obviously, I'm saying this now when, when you know, 10 years later, you know, 12 years later, uh, we just experienced another black swan event, right? The pandemic that wiped out another whole uh, major swath of, of businesses and, and jobs gone into. So, but I was prepared this time. And I promised myself back then that I would never be in that spot again. That if anything like this happened again, I would be in a position where I could weather that storm. It probably wouldn't be comfortable, but I wouldn't be staring at my little girl wondering, holy shit, where are we going to sleep tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, like I'm being evicted. And, Shelter, and spoiler, food, I, all the security. Yeah, like, yeah, like, like, spoiler, I did get evicted. I was evicted. I was out on my ass. Again, I was lucky enough to have some friends and family that could help me through uh, in the in immediate time until I got a job and back on my feet. And I would, that made me lucky because, you know, there's nothing you, you do in your life that, that makes family or friends, you know, do that. Um, and, but not everyone was as lucky, right? But I, I promised myself I'd never be in that position again. So that's actually what motivated me in 2011 to to really go full time and start my company because I never forgot that I had anxiety. Every you know that trauma had set in, even though I got a job in 2000, I think late 2009, right? Um, you know, I had had that job for a couple of years, but that two years that I was at that tax firm doing the marketing there. That two years, every day, I still thought, what if this happens again? What if this happens again? Like, this job is not safe. This job is not safe. And that was every single day of my life that that anxiety was built in. And that ultimately is when I decided I need to get out of here. I need to make my own way. And granted, granted I, I didn't do it the way that you probably should. You know, I probably should have saved a little longer and whatnot. But I was also missing out on her life, too. Not just the anxiety of what if this all goes away, but also you know, what this goes away. And I didn't even get to, to raise her that much. You know what I mean? So, um, so I quit. And, and then, and that's when I started my company and I did things within that company. And again, like the MR stuff, the quickest way, by the way, to ensure that you can weather a storm is to have that predictability. That transition to MRR versus project was a huge deal that solved 
so much of my anxiety of what could come. And fast forward to, to 2020, did we take a punch in the gut in March? Yeah, we did. Did we go under? Not even close because we had set up a system that was mostly bulletproof, right? It survived this and this was really, really bad. And if something that comes that's even worse than this, well, then I think marketing is going to be the last of anybody's worries anyway. And, you know, we're going to be going uh, Mad Max style, right? But <laughs> we, we, we weathered this, but it was only because of those decisions I made 10 years ago to cover my butt if anything like this ever happened again. And it all came down to MRR. So that's why when you reached out about the, the podcast, I was like, hell yeah, I'm getting on this because like <laughs> MRR saved my life. It saved my mental health, my emotional health. It saved my my family life, it saved my financial life. MRR saved everything. Was it easy to get there? No. Was it worth it? Yes. And I recommend that everybody do anything you can to get to a point where that's sustainable and uh, and predictable. Well, I'm glad that MRR has added a lot of resilience to the business portion of your life. And that, of course, alleviates and reduces stress inputs to the personal side of your life. But have you also incorporated any other additional habits like you know, for me, for instance, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I've noticed that I'm fairly sensitive to getting in cardio, getting enough sleep, you know, drinking enough water, like all these kind of things have, you know, a cumulative effect. So do yeah. you, have you changed your habits at all either? Uh, like for yeah, travel, travel and remote work, um, the ability to do what, and, and letting my people do that too. Their, their emotional well being has increased because for one, I mean, listen, the pandemic, uh, you know, we got rid of our office because, well, we couldn't go back to it, like literally legally. <laughs> so we said, okay, I guess we're all remote again. Um, and we had been remote for years before that. And then for the last three or four years, we had offices. Um, and then obviously we, we bailed out of those again. And one thing that has been recent is I took the money that we saved from the overhead and I started investing it into um, employee travel packages. Um, as like reward systems and things like that. So employees that have, you know, really rocked um, my director of operations, uh, Rachel, um, her and her wife just got married recently. And I said, you know what? Uh, honeymoon gift to you. You guys pick anywhere you want to go and we're going to put, you know, this much money into your, uh, into your travel plans. Right. And it's on us basically. Right. And so, you know, that was really uplifting for them. They, they thought that was really cool. I've been traveling a little more my, myself. Um, not, no, not always, you know, during the pandemic side, you know, my, I travel to see my daughter. I traveled to, uh, um, uh, for, for some business stuff here and there, but, but before 2020 travel was a big thing still. Um, I also, the, that remote work, if you're able in any way, shape or form to at least have maybe a few remote work days, right? So even if you are still at an office, right? Even after all the pandemic and what you do is mostly office-based, if you can even just give yourself two days a week, Hell, even just one day, give yourself Wednesday, just break the week up in half, just split it back right down the middle and take a remote work day. Um, that really helps with mental health because I find that um, a lot of things that build up in people through the week is all the things not getting done at home, for example, like errands and chores and stuff, because it, it gives a lot of people anxiety to come home and their bed's not made, the dishes are full, the, the trash is full, the, the living room's dirty, you know, um, they got to take out the, the, the cat's litter or whatever, you know, or there's the dog stuff. And, and they still got to make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they still got to, and they still got to function when they get home. And, and there's something about that people, I think really underestimate how much even just those little things can weigh on you. You know, they, you got to get car, gas in the car. You got to get a car wash or maybe you can oil change, like all these things. And everyone pushes them off to the weekend. And the irony is that the weekend is when you're supposed to be relaxing and, and, and doing something for yourself. And instead you end up doing just a different type of work. Now you're just yep. doing personal work. And so you never actually really stopped working at all. 
So if you can even take just one day in the middle of the week where you can remote work and get some of these things done at home, like I'll be on calls. And if I'm listening in on a conference call and I don't, I'm not needed to talk at the moment, I'll be putting myself on mute. I'll be doing the dishes. It makes me feel really good. Cause I'm like, look, the dishes are done and I'm, and I'm still working. Like it's amazing. Like, I'll do laundry. I'll put in a load of laundry, you know, let that run off its own. Like, so I, it sounds small and not everyone can do it, but if you're able to just do even just one day a week, remote from even when you have to go back to office after all this pandemic is over, I highly recommend that because being home, you know, in remote during your workday um, or even somewhere else, maybe you want to go to a coffee shop and sit in the sun out on the patio, just get that vitamin D and, you know, and be like, Oh, like that is so helpful mentally and emotionally. I, I can't possibly overstate it. Very restorative to shift around when you're able to get some of that stuff done. I, I completely agree. And any boss who, who thinks, oh, I don't want to let my, my employees work from home because they're just going to watch YouTube and play video games and not get any work done, you hired the wrong people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That says a lot about your hiring process and also your trust level. You know, a lot of big companies thought that too. And they fought the whole uh, remote work thing for, for, you know, decades. And then when they were forced to do it, guess what? The numbers went up, not down. By so a lot, not even a little, who, who, by a oh, lot. Oh, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. And now all those companies that were like, no, no, no one can get anything done work from home. Now they're saving a ton of money on office overhead and they're able to transition that money. You know what's been the big winner? Employees, again, if you, if you, uh, to be sensitive to a lot of people lost their jobs, obviously, but if you kept your job and for those who are going to get their jobs back when everything comes roaring back here, because it will, things will get better. There is light at the end of this tunnel, Right. For everyone who either has their job now or, or going to get their job back later, um, the great thing about where some of these companies went is because they saved all that money on the overhead, I've seen a lot of companies transition that money into employee wellness programs and into remote working. So, for example, they've been buying them. I've seen companies that were buying office setups for their employees because that's cheaper than literally having them come to an office. They were investing in their travel, in their mental health, in rewards programs. I have friends who work for software companies that specialize in employee rewards programs, right? And they have had their best years ever or the year ever in 2020 and going into 2021. So, I mean, they're telling me firsthand, they're like these companies that we could never get on board are jumping at this because they're saving all this money on overhead and they're transitioning it because they're seeing the results of, of how much better people work from home that they're, they're trying to double down on it. They realize that their happiness being remote is actually producing more work in probably four working hours at home than eight hours was doing at the office. Not to right? mention so now they're doubling, they're doubling all down. that stress. <laughs> exactly. All those things. Yeah. Great. Well, you know, uh, thank you so much for sharing you know, your, your entire story. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, the, the rough patch you went through. And I think it's important for people to, to recognize the, you know, there is, there is hope at the end and there are things that are within your control. You know, it's like, uh, you can't always control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. Um, exactly. and, and as long as you can keep that in focus and, and have gratitude about what you do have available to you, uh, I think most people can find a path forward. Um, so thanks so much for sharing all of that. You know, if, if someone wanted to follow up with you, if they're interested in your, your agency services, you know, the, the, the LinkedIn outreach, the social media management, <laughs> yeah. whatever, or, sure. or they just have a question for you personally, what's the, what's the best next steps for them? Um, you know, they can shoot me an email personally. I, I, I answer my emails all the time. Uh, JC at, uh, and then our, our domain for our company, infinity, M group.com. The M stands for marketing. So JC at infinity M group.com. And then also I've been really big on clubhouse recently. So a lot of these things that we're talking about, I'm just giving away this 
these stories and this, this information and these helpful tips on Clubhouse, um, which is kind of a live streaming audio uh, social media platform, if anyone. And right now it's in beta, it's for iPhone only, but by the time this airs, it'll probably be on Android also. Um, so I highly recommend that. And my username on Clubhouse is at J.C. Granger, uh, G-R-A-N-G-E-R. Great. Well, I'm, I'm also on Clubhouse from time to time. I, I find it very interesting. It's, uh, you know, pe people think it, you know, I see all these titles on Clubhouse groups like, is Clubhouse going to kill podcasting? It's like, no, you dummies. We're, we're past the time of one thing destroys another. It's, it's splintering. No, it's it, all, it all works together. It all works together. Totally. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real, real pleasure to chat with you. And uh, for anyone who's interested in, in some of the stuff you talked about, definitely reach out to JC and see how they can help you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Travis. Yeah, my pleasure.